This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Want to become the sort of developer top rail shops like ThoughtBot fight over? Join Upcase today to get the pro training, insider knowledge, access to ThoughtBot developers, and a community of like-minded learners you need. Hone core skills like Vim, Tmux, Git, and Rails by visiting upcase.com slash half off to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Hello, Jose. <laughs> Hi, Derek. How's it going? Good. So we're joined today by uh, Jose Valim from Platforma Tech, uh, creator of Elixir, Ecto, former core team member of Rails, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you've been listening to the last few episodes, uh, we've done a decent amount of talking about Elixir. I'm on an Elixir project now. And um, we've been having a lot of conversations about some of the... I guess I, I called them dark elixir corners that are emerging for me. <laughs> you know, like the first week I was super excited about everything. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, this isn't this isn't as perfect as I would like it to be. And I know there's probably a reason why it's not as perfect as I would like it to be. But it's like, oh, this isn't I wish this was better, that kind of thing. And then Sean and you have also been interacting a little bit about like ORM design, because obviously Sean is experienced with active record and also writing diesel for the for as a rust ORM. So we thought it would be interesting to chat with you about all sorts of various things. Great. Yeah, so I guess we could start with you and I had like a brief back and forth over Twitter, um, and I'm looking it up now, but it was, I said there were dark elixir corners emerging. For me, it was like atoms and strings were doing like that, that differentiation like that is familiar to me from Ruby is here again in elixir, and I occasionally find myself like stumbling over, wait, is this a, is this a map of atom, with atom keys or with string keys? Then there's like, there were some time issues with like uh, the, the various formats that time can be in. And then I was having some difficulty with some impenet. I, I called them impenetrable errors, like argument error, argument error was the the one I, I listed, which was frustrating to me. But when we talked about atoms and strings, you had mentioned that atoms are for trusted input and strings are for like things that come from params, right? Yeah, kind of around that. It's good, and then it's good that now I'm here and we can expand on that. Yeah. Uh, before I go, before we talk about those three things, and we don't need to talk about all of them necessarily. Mm-hmm. Those three examples, they are really, really good because. Uh, so I listened to the episode and I, I actually really like, because I mean, I really like feedback like this because it shows areas we can improve. And I, I'm not saying exactly that this was what you were saying, what you were feeling, but uh, I, you know, it's kind of a bit of like a frustrating thing, right? You want to do something and then there are things getting in your way and you kind of get a little bit of frustrate, frustration, like, oh, this is supposed to be easier than it is. Why is this making my life so, um, so hard, right? And as you said in, in the last episode, like nothing's perfect. Uh, I, what, what was your quote, Sean? Like you... There is, you don't love a language, there's a language you tolerate or something like that? Yeah. Um, programmers who, who say that they like a language just don't know it well enough because we don't have languages we like, we just have languages we dislike the least. <laughs> or another right. way to put it is if there was any perfect uh, language or framework or solution, we'd all just be using that and we wouldn't need to have discussions. Yeah, exactly, right? So it, it, it was a really nice, uh, I was listening to it, it was a really nice discussion. And I think the, the, why those three examples, they, they are uh, really important is because there are those frustrations and sometimes there are things that they can be improved. 
and they haven't because you know prioritization there are other more important things or there is no time right there are all kind of reasons for those things uh, but there are things that they they are limitations that are hard for us to to remove and fix them and there are things that were like you know it's supposed to work this way we are kind of giving you some frustration between quotes let's say right so there is a, a better way to move on and uh, we can see this in Elixir, for example, when we make things immutable, when you come from a given background, you can say, oh, everything in terms of immutability, this is a little bit frustrating because uh, depending on what you want to do, you need to think differently, you need to treat the problem differently, but we don't want to fix that, right? If that is frustrating at the beginning, that's how it's supposed to be. We can improve material documentation to make it easier, but you are, you are supposed to hit that bump, right? And, and, and fill it. So those cases, I think they are like exactly three examples of these scenarios. So the argument error that is said, like there are some times that we raise just argument error. I hate those two, right? And the reason for them is they're usually coming from the Erlang fun functions that are written in C. So when they're checking the arguments, they don't give the reason. They just say, an atom, bad arg, and there is unfortunately not much we can do on our side. Uh, when we can work around it uh, and give more feedback, we do, but you know, it's something that we have to live with. And it's even hard to change from the Erlang side because people may be expecting that error. And then if we change to something else more meaningful, like let's say you're expecting an integer, then we start at least saying bad integer because something is not an integer or something like that. It would break existing APIs, so it's kind of uh, uh, something we can change. We, I have personally been trying, so for example, in Erlang 17, which was a year ago, uh, they, two years ago actually, they introduced a new data type, which was a map, which we use a lot as Elixir developers. And it had the same thing in the API. If you try to do some operation, it had bad dark, bad dark. But at that time, at least I could push and change things a little bit. So if you're working with maps and then you try to update a map and there, a key is not there, we are getting bad key. The key is not here. Uh, you're getting bad map. So now that I, I, you know, there's a little bit that we can do to improve the situation. You're doing that, but sometimes we just can't. And then uh, going back to the atoms uh, and, and strings. It's not really about what you trust and what you don't trust. I, uh, that's that's one way to put it. But to me, it's more about structured data and non-structured data. So when you receive a parameters of a string, there is no structure in that thing. So what you want to do is that you want to get this data that can be anything. And as soon as it passes certain barrier, uh, barrier as soon as it entering your system, you want to make that thing structured. You don't want to be passing the structured data around, which again, it's very close to what uh, you're saying, but I think it has a more important distinction because it's easier for it to recognize that, yeah, I really don't want to be passing this unstructured thing all around my code, right? I want to, to have explicit place where this conversion is happening. So uh, I think it's interesting that because, as you said, we had exactly the same issue in Rails, right, with, with Ruby. And then where, you know, you are receiving external data and then uh, for a good amount of time you had to choose. The, this data came as a string, but you wanted to use symbols to access those things. And it just worked transparently, right? That, was the, that is the solution that Rails uh, employed. You can access the parameters by strings and atoms and it doesn't make a thing. It uh, doesn't make a difference, any difference. And here we kind of said, you know what, uh, we wanted to convert this because that's not the proper data to be passing around. And I think it's one of the reasons, one of the reasons exactly because I used to think much more 
about data in functional programming languages, right? We are not trying to hide it so much. You are thinking more about data and the representation and its representation. So I think it matters a little bit more. Yeah. And like for me, I think where it came up for me was mostly because I'm operating on both edges of like when the data comes in, it's strings and I turn it into symbols once I get it structured, right? But then I'm also writing the test case. So in the test case, I might have a, something that goes through various transformations. Like I'm passing in something that is a map to like an HTTP call to the controller. And then I'm getting something back that's not, a, that it is a map, but it's a map of strings as string keys rather than that those types of keys. So like I'm having to think about it more than just like, well, when you get it in from the controller, it's strings. And then you structure it into a map of atoms because first it's structured and also it's more pleasant for you to work with. But Yeah, yeah. I see, I see, yeah. Uh, in this way, your test works like a client. So mm-hmm. if you're passing it, whatever, we are going to encode that into the into the string so it can be decoded later on. Yep. So yeah, but I, I see it, yeah. I am, I am curious though, why the decision was made to have these be separate types. Because in Ruby, the reason symbols, at least originally needed to be separate was because strings are heap allocated, growable and mutable. And heap allocated aside, strings are immutable and of course, as a, uh, as a part of that, not growable in Elixir. So in theory, they, they don't serve any separate purpose. So the purpose of atoms is that it was a more a performance concern because if you're going to compare strings, you need to go and compare. Uh, okay, so if we really go back to the beginning of Erlang, because this we got from Erlang, they didn't have the string type we have in Elixir today what they call the string type and what they call a string type in Erlang still today, it's a list of integers. So that would be really slow to do comparisons because you would need to traverse both lists to check, you know, to see if all the integers are equal. And with Atom, it's like an integer comparison because we have the Atom table. So they are not garbage collected as well. So we have the Atom table. We just need to check where that Atom is in the Atom table. And then we compare to integers and that's going to be much faster. It seems like, though, you could solve that differently as well, because uh, you, you still have to do that, that exact same comparison cost in order to look up the atom in the first place. I mean, sure, if you're doing multiple comparisons on the same thing after that point, you, you have savings there. But then if you're in the case where you have a literal in one part of the code and a literal in another part of the code, coming from, you know, like more of a C sense, right, ultimately, those are just going to end up being the same pointer. And, and if you have a string type that's a pointer and a length, then that's just that's that's two comparison operations. And, and to actually convert a string to an atom, you still have to pay that full cost for the lookup. I believe that the way that the atoms they tra- they are transiting at the runtime, uh, we can think this is not precise, but we can think that we can say uh, one byte, the first two bits is a tag, and the rest is the integer. So that's how it's transiting at runtime. Sure. So at runtime, it's like being sent as numbers with a tag that says it's not really the number, but that's how it is. So in the code, like if you go to the VM code, when it's comparing atoms, it's not even going to the table, it just compares the atoms directly. I think I had like a couple of conversations with other people on Twitter about it as well, where they were like, well, this is why it's because, you know, same type of thing. Like, nobody mentioned the comparison, actually. That was really good to hear that um, about it being like a list of integers you're comparing, basically. But they were talking about the garbage collection thing. And I was like, that makes 100% sense. I totally understand that. Coming from Ruby, I understand that concern. But that's an implementer's concern and not an end user's concern. Yeah. Right? So yeah, like, yeah, as yeah. an end user, I just want there to be one thing. 
but it's totally I like I understand why there can't be right I understand but it's like this is the end goal I have in mind uh, right yeah and, and, and the garbage collector is because of performance that's why you don't want to garbage collect because then you need to go and check against the table did this atom thing change so the reason really is performance and I think it's worth pointing out that in Elixir we do a lot of atoms comparison Right, it's not only for hash lookups in 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 dictionaries and things like that, but we are using tuple style all the time, right? We are asserting that something return a tuple with okay. So we really do a lot of, of those, and it's really important that it is it is fast because we rely a lot on it. Right. My point on the on the lookups wasn't necessarily though to imply that you're doing the lookup when you're passing the atoms around, but more that in any case where you aren't comparing a string literal with another string literal. Ultimately, you have to, you are creating the atom from some sort of dynamic input, and that has to pay for the lookup. Uh, yes, yes, I agree. And all the parts that are still using strings, you're not getting the performance benefits because they're using strings, they're not using atoms anyway. Right. Which goes back to the point why converting from unstructured to structured is also important. Right. <laughs> right. It's kind of like... The other thing that I think actually was really interesting to see is like on the episode I complained about like trying to work between specifying an exact time and date in the like pair of tuples for in Erlang, like you give it, you know, year, month, day, hour, minute, second, and then passing that off to good times and then to Timex and like the different formats that those all dealt with. I was like, how, I don't understand how do I get the thing that comes back from this into the right format that this is accepting, that this expects. And then in the last like week or two, there's been some public movement on that, right? So yeah, no, that's great because it was on the show. The show was the thing that... So going back, like, there are kind of varying kinds of frustrations and there are some that we can fix, some that we can't fix. And then I was listening to the show and then someone said, that's annoying for sure. And then someone said, oh, what do you mean? It's exactly like things are happening in Ruby and Rails. And then it remem- remind me of how things were more complicated. It, it, I had, like, flashbacks, right? And, like... Oh, we need we need to fix this. I'll I'll try to give it a higher priority because uh, so so what happened is that uh, I know that having good daytime handling it's important, but it's not an easy problem to solve. Mm-hmm. So there is uh, Lau in the community, and he writes great blog posts about working with dates and times. And he writes those blog posts where he goes with a list of twenty things. We we can search a link later. Where he goes to a list of twenty things that most developers, they are wrong when it comes about working with dates and time, right? Just wrong assumptions. So it, it's a complicated thing. And I always had in my mind, like, this is important. We need to work on this. But in terms of priority and, you know, having time to figure all that out, I could never come to it. But now that the community grow and we have people like Law, we have people like Paul working on libraries, I said, you know what? I can just leverage I can just use their knowledge and everything they built to move things forward. So uh, after listening to the show, I send them an email and say, look, you both already told me already at some point in time, uh, both uh, Lau and, and Paul, and uh, that we need to have daytime in Elixir. And I think we should start moving to this direction. And I think the first step is to have date, time, and daytime types in the standard library. So at least we can have libraries like good times, 
Acto, Calendar, and Timex, they will all work on the same structure. So at least the conversion issue completely disappears, and then we can start building on top. And then it can be really interesting because now that we have the structure, we can have libraries that are focusing on formatting or parsing or like good times that is meant to parse user expressions like three days ago or things like that. So we talked a lot for email. We have a thread with uh, 50 emails. We had a really long discussion about what should be those uh, base types and what they should represent. And we condensed that into a pull request that was merged. We we're adding those types. And the plan for before Elixir 1.3 is exactly to add a little bit of functionality because we just have the types. There is no functionality in there. But at least we can rely on ISO 8601 for doing parsing and formatting. So we are going to add some very basic functionality and hopefully we'll allow the ecosystem to continue building on the rest. Yeah, so thank you. That, that, was, that was a great, great feedback. I'll keep complaining then whenever I come across. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I've run through, the other thing I ran into that I've seen is, I believe I saw that it's already going to be fixed in 1.3 is like, the other day I was trying to update some dependencies and I was getting like conflicts with dependencies of dependencies and I could not figure out what the parent dependency was that I needed to, like who's to blame for this dependency conflict. And I saw that now there's going to be like a dependency tree like you would see in Bundler. Am I making this up? Like you'll be able to see like the whole tree of your dependency so you can see exactly what, what library depends on the thing that you're having trouble with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there are two issues there. So you already have this tree and everything, but there is one. So I, I like to think that our bug reports in Mix, they are good, but there is one that is bad, which is when you have conflicting requirements. It just says conflicting requirements, but it don't, doesn't say who is conflicting on what and which version. So that's a poor report we have there, and that's a bug, and that's going to be fixed. So hopefully, when one tree is out, you don't even need to run those commands. We don't, you don't even need to think about the tree. The command is going to give you a better output on how to fix the problem. So that's one thing. But we have two new commands for one tree, which is app tree that prints. Okay, it has app tree and apps tree. And dependencies are everything that you, you have, like test dependencies, uh, things that you need at compilation time and the applications are things that you need at runtime. So now we're going to print both and you'll be able to navigate. I know someone was working on dot files, so you can generate a graph and then you can open it up and navigate it a little bit better. But yeah, we have those coming as well. Yeah, it's cool. Mac, uh, just to mention one other thing on the on the dates and time stuff, I really like that approach that you guys are taking where you're focusing on the data structures first, because I think that's what's most important for a standard library is when you have a data type that is likely to cross the library boundaries, having a single type or structure that everything can target and then leaving more complex functionality to other libraries. I think that makes a lot of sense. So <laughs> great. Thank you. Thank you for the feedback. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so like those were my gripes basically, and it seemed it's really cool to see that like, like I suspected, there's reasons for everything, and some things are going to get better, and some things are going to get better more slowly because they're harder, and you know that's as you would expect. In general, though, my experience has been like super positive. Like I keep telling people here at Thoughtbot, like if I'm starting a new app today, I'm starting it with Elixir and Phoenix because I've just been really enjoying it. If it, you know all 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 other things equal, I've just been really enjoying it. And some of that might be, again, the newness, and some of that is like that I enjoy different parts of it better. And one thing I've really liked is working with Ecto. Just mostly, like, from, from the standpoint of somebody who did a lot of performance work in Rails leading up, like, those were my projects leading up to this Elixir project, like, just the ability to stop people from doing N plus one queries, right? To not have automatic preloading was like, I was pretty psyched about it. Like, I, I talked about it on the show, like, at first there were actually N plus one queries, but it was because 
a library was getting in between and like noticing that it wasn't preloaded and preloading for me and like once we fixed that problem it was like oh now there's all these great errors that are telling me like you need to preload this I was like, all right, so I'll just go preload it where I need to preload it, or do we really need to preload this, that kind of thing. So I think just from that alone, it's been uh, a boon. From what I see in Rails apps, the ability to get away from that error, and that class of error entirely is pretty awesome. Uh, that, that's great. And, and i just like to, to expand on that because you saw the benefit immediately. And I consider that to be a huge win as well because I saw exactly those kind of problems, right? Uh, N plus one everywhere. And the interesting thing is here, so I like to say when I give talks about Phoenix or I give talks about Elixir, I eventually mention functional programming and it's like object orientation. You don't really have a proper definition, right? People debate a lot what it means to be object oriented, what it means to be a functional programming language. And to me, after all this time uh, working with Elixir and uh, with Erlang, functional programming is about making the complex parts of your system explicit. That's for me how it sums up. It's going to not allow you to do things that it's going to bring complexity. So today I retweeted something saying that, so there's Elm, right? Which is a language that compiles to JavaScript functional language. And they're saying like, it's not that Elm hates side effects, that Elm respects them, right? You need to treat those things explicitly and handle them. So for example, even if we wanted, we could not add automatic preloading like Rails uh, to Ecto because in order to do that, we need to have a state. We need to have mutability. We need to have a way to say, hey, if someone needs this, we are going to load it behind the scenes and change this object and cache it in here. And we cannot do that. I mean, we can do that, but we need to have places of keeping state and so on. And Rich Hick is really good when he's talking about those things that he says, every time we are mutating stuff, why mutation is so hard, mutation is so complicated, it's because we are adding time. Now our objects, right, when we're mutating them, we are adding the time factor to them. And we need every time we look at them, we need to consider on which time this object is, what things happen before, what things happen later in this whole scale. So I just wanted to tell a little bit about the reasoning behind, right? And I think it's it was one of the things that maybe at in the past I wanted to kind of be a little bit more ah, no, it doesn't matter. Let's do preloading because it's so convenient and so on. And disregard like the cost that it may have in, in the long term. But it's not letting me do that. It's saying, hey, you know, this can be the source of issues. If you want to do that, you have to be explicit about it and you have to, to handle it in other ways. So I am curious because uh, I, I mean I absolutely agree with with the the lack of automatic freeloading and how and how it can remove that complexity. But I am curious then uh, with the decision that you guys took in your design of associations, where there are still properties of that of that same structure. So if you if the user has many posts, for example, it's still user dot posts, as opposed to for example in Diesel, what we do is the return type of that query becomes a tuple of a user and all of its posts. Right. So, um, and, and you talked about this uh, in, in the last episode, I think, and I completely agreed with the trade-offs that were saying that, but if I have the association that needs to load more associations, and then you have the tuples with tuples inside, and that's kind of hard to manage. But it's easier if you have dynamic types. That The, the hard part there is is representing it in the type system properly, but I think it's completely doable in a dynamic type system really easily. Yeah, so uh, to me, one of the things that I'm trying to push more and more when it comes to Ecto is that you can have many, because every every schema that you define, you choose how it maps to the table, you can have many of those. So why the field is important, I, I why the field being there, I think it's useful. It's not about the reading cases, 
but it's about the updating cases. It's not when I, about when I want to preload data to show it to the user, but it's when I have a complex form or a complex API and I want to change how the whole things work. I'm using the field as a foundation. So I wrote a blog post about working with nested associations in Ecto. And what we do is that we have this idea of change sets that tells exactly how the date, how your data changes. And when you're working with nested associations, if you print the change set, you can see the whole tree across all of our associations, right? So the, the field being there, it's useful exactly for this scenario and I want to change data and it allows me to model it exactly like that. So what you can do is that, for example, if you have like really complex forms or complex place or complex APIs, you can define a schema that has all those associations and where you're going to reflect those, those rules. But if you, on the other hand, you have something more uh, where you just need to get a lot of data and send it really, really fast, and you don't want to be carrying all of those extra fields around, right? You can get another schema, which is a more compact representation of the same data and use it to send it around. Does it make sense? I'm not, because I feel like I didn't answer the question, but I think I kind of show a little bit more of the trade-offs and nuances. Yeah, no, I think the, the update trade-off makes a lot of sense there. Okay, thank you. Yeah, because, you know, I didn't give a, a, a perfect answer, but it's kind of like, I completely agree with the drawbacks that they are putting a lot of fields in there, and we can end up seeing the future like schemas with 20 associations in them. But I hope that this ability where you can define a bunch of schemas that map to the same table will lead people to actually break into different schemas mapping to the same table instead of having like one huge schema with all those things that's going to be inefficient and it's going to be hard to maintain and so on. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess the thing that that just gives me um, pause there is is the reliance on errors to communicate when something isn't lo- like runtime errors to communicate that something isn't loaded. Um, yeah, but that's just that's me with my aversion to runtime errors for anything. <laughs> no, no, I I agree with you. That that's that's one side that we have on our side uh, that there isn't much we can do how to fix because it's a structure. So you we cannot even do something like user dot posts, and when you call that, we say, oh, it's not loaded. So what we do is that we have, because it's, it's a structure, the user is a structure, when you try to access post and it's not loaded, we return a not loaded structure. And usually when you try to do something with that, is that when you notice there's an error. But I, I definitely agree with you. It's, it's also one of the sides on this list of pros and cons. Yeah. Trade-offs everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one, one thing that I found interesting in the design of, of uh, Ecto was the ability to have... I'm not, I'm not remember the exact term that you guys use them, but when you have a data structure nested inside of your model, but it's not a member of a different table. You, you can do, so we have embedded. maps, which... Sorry, yeah. embedded, not but it, Ah, yes, 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 sorry. Yeah, so in, we have associations and we have embedded, and embedded's going to be serialized into a column, yes. Oh, it, it is a single column. It is going to be a single column, yes. Okay. I mean, it I... depends on the database. So for Postgres, for example, it's going to be... JSON B or B, it's JSON B, right? It's not B. Yeah, JSON, JSON B. So. Yeah, so it's going to be JSON B, and then we can do a lot of interesting stuff with that. But if you're using MySQL, which I don't know why you would use MySQL, but <laughs> if you're using MySQL, it just gets into there and kind of gets lost. Okay, so I, I guess I, I guess I misunderstood. Then I I was thinking that that was actually multiple columns uh, from the table that were just grouped up into a, into another structure. No, but that's interesting. That's actually quite interesting as well. An interesting way to, to tackle the problem. And you could actually do that because, no, maybe you can't. Yeah, no, you, you wouldn't be able to do that. But that's an interesting uh, approach that we could do as well. 
but why did you think it would be interesting? What is your mind? Are the pros and cons? And I mean, it just gives more control over how you, how you might want to model. Right. I, so one of the things I've learned from just maintaining active record is that I don't think uh, having a model be one to one with a database table is the right way to go, even if it's as simple as just you have uh, a structure that represents not all of the columns. But yeah, it's just it's a it's a use case that, that I've sometimes seen where um, multiple columns and you just so as a rather contrived example, right? Uh, let's say you have a product table and you have a. Uh, price and currency column. You might have a money structure that represents price and currency and d- is able to do comparison if it if it knows about conversion rates somehow and stuff like that. But you would still want to store them as just a pr- as just a price and currency on the back end. Cases like that, I think it, it would make a lot of sense uh, to not necessarily use a serialized data structure like, like JSON, but instead have them have them continue to live on as separate as separate columns, which is what I was thinking you guys were doing in Ecto. Yeah, yeah, I see. I see. That's that, that. That's a great point. It gives you more flexibility where you can have the table, but you can still break it around different structures in the application. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's interesting because we don't have. So, if you want to have these that you just described, let's suppose that you have currency, then you have like currency, which kind of currency, and then the value. It would be two fields, and today in Ecto, there is no way that if there are two columns in the database, there is kind of no way you can make them become one thing on the Acto side. And uh, it's something that we say, like, this can be useful. We know that it can be useful uh, under some situations, but we haven't got to solve it because something that we do, and I think Rails 5 is getting a very similar API, which I think we talk about this, which is every field that we have in our schema, you can give the type. And the type tells exactly how to cast, how to load data from the database and how to dump the data to the database. But it's always a one-to-one mapping. So we don't have this possible M to N mapping in Acto. And it's something that uh, I always think like, ah, it would be nice to have, but we never come to a conclusion. But what is what is said could maybe be how we solve this, right? Yeah, uh, well, it's, it's funny, yeah, because I'm the one who, who wrote the, the attributes API for Rails 5. And one of the yeah, things know, I've yeah. been wanting to add is end-to-end mapping in Active Record. But I'm starting to realize more and more that I either need to significantly reduce the scope from what I would like and figure out if that's still a feature that, that I am happy with because mutability uh, basically ruins the whole thing, um, <laughs> especially when it comes into dirty checking and stuff like that. But it, it basically comes down to, because what I'd like to have it be an active record is the ability both to go from N columns to one field and also be able to go from one field to N columns. Um, right. or, or one column to end fields rather. Uh, yeah, yeah. but the issue there is that, uh, so if you're going from one column to end fields, the, either the type that represents that column needs to uh, effectively know about the type of each of the fields that you're going to pull out of it, or ev- the type of each of those fields needs to know about the type of the entire structure. Since you have mutability there, you end up needing the same object reference for the properties of the column itself, as well as the properties uh, of each of the of each of those composed attributes, and then we also need a structure in there where it knows that when you assign the field, to then update the the parent structure, and it, and it becomes pretty messy. Um, and I I think it's less messy if you're if you're going the opposite direction, where you're just building one field out of, out of n columns. But even then, or actually no, it's no less messy because then if you if you mutate your uh, your, your your money object, right? I, I need to somehow know to go update yeah. the, the actual columns on the model. And I can't, and I have to do it right at that point because there's the expectation if you do uh, model dot price dot value or amount equals ten, right? Then when you do model dot 
price underscore amount or whatever the column's actually called, you would expect that change to have propagated there, but I have no actual way to go in and know when you've done that. And so that makes it very, mutability makes it very difficult to actually do yeah. an active record. It ruins the whole party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's interesting because you're, you're talking about mutability and you're talking about dirty tracking and it's exactly, it's like, so I was talking and I was talking earlier about the functional programming, make the things uh, explicit. And it's exactly what led for us to have Acto change sets. And to me, it's one of my favorite features in Acto because what we had is that we had the types, right? That represent like a user. And every time we wanted to update this user, we would send the whole information. And then I thought, well, I actually want to have dirty tracking, but we, in order to implement dirty tracking where you change something and then we can track that, would either need to hide everything for, for, from a very weird API and kind of make the structure weird, or we had to do something else. And we were stuck on this for a long period of time. At this point, it's a long time ago, but we were stuck on that problem that we wanted to do dirty tracking, we wanted to send only the things that you changed, but we didn't know how. And then we had the idea of having this change set thing that tells exactly how your data is going to change. And I really like how the validations, they run on the change set because the validations are not part of our schema. They are part of like how this thing is supposed to change because even sometimes you have the same data and you want to, you have the same structure and you want to validate it in different ways depending on who is changing that. So it was, again, one of the things that, you know, if I could be uh, kind of naughty. Oh, naughty is the word I wanted. Uh, I wanted <laughs> to use before. Yes. So if I want to like be naughty and say, ah, oh, I'm just going to bypass that. I'm going to do a very quick hack here on the side. I would be able to do that, and it would be a known uh, ideal solution. But you know, by having that block in there, I had to think about it, and eventually we came up. I think a very good solution for the problem. One one of the things that I wanted to ask uh, regarding Acto and Dizo is that. Uh, one of the things that I, I'm really excited about Acto2 is that we are going to have concurrent database tests. Right. Right. So today, if you're, if we have concurrent tests, you just need to set a flag like async in your test case, and we are going to run the things concurrently. And with Acto2, we are going to allow you to run test case concurrently, even if they are talking to the database, which is really exciting. I like to say that you know it's 2016. Everything we do should be using all cores. And uh, that's going to be the case. And what what I, I like about it, it's because the the solution that we have in mind, it's based in an, in an ownership mechanism. So when you start your test, uh, the thing that's running your test, we call it a test process, which is uh, a, that very lightweight, cheap thread of execution. It's going to check out a connection from a pool and it's going to say, I own this thing now and I have control over who can use it. So over the whole test, and when we check that connection, we start a transaction. So uh, any change we do inside that test is not going to be propagated. And that's how it works fine. And then just doing those changes, you already can get concurrency because every test is going to have its own connection and it's right inside the transaction. But it's interesting is that sometimes you have a test that needs to collaborate with other processes like a Phoenix channel. So what we do is that we have this ownership mechanism where I can say, hey, now you are allowed to use this connection as well. And the connection is going to serialize the requests that all the collaborating processes can be can be doing over it. And I may be completely off here, but every time I'm thinking about it, I, 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 Rust comes to my mind, right? Exactly because yeah. of the ownership and have explicit way of coordinating who has access to what. So yeah. do you have like, can, can something like that be done in Diesel? Do you have like thoughts for something like this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the solution in Diesel is really simple. We don't have a thread local connection. So every, every test, by definition, will end up having its own connection because the connection has to get established somewhere. 
and and then you get it from a pool and you can get it from a pool absolutely and then um actually for tests you wouldn't get it from a pool you would just establish a new connection per test uh and then then the number fine as well um, it's, it's not pooled right now, and part of that's just because we don't ne- necessarily have any mechanisms in the default Rust test harness to share anything between tests. So you wouldn't actually be able to share that pool. Um, so you could do it. It would be really, really painful. What you would have to do, because if you, if you want to have anything, any variable that's global, it's not allowed to have any sort of destructor, uh, which is what a, a thread pool would have. Uh, and there is a, a, a thing that lets you lazily create global stuff that would have a destructor, but then it has to get wrapped in a mutex um, because it, it can potentially be shared yeah. across threads. So it'd be really painful. There, there's people working on other test harnesses that would potentially allow it to pool. But anyway, right now, no. So we don't pool, we don't pool between connection. Uh, we don't pool, but we do have one connection per test. And then uh, similarly, if you, need to, if, it, you'll, if you need to share it with an app server, right, um, what you'd actually probably end up doing is you'd be spinning up one app server per test. And then you uh, you would borrow the database connection from the app itself when you needed to when you needed to use it. Yeah, I see. And then and then you, same thing. You'd start a transaction. Yeah, that's really interesting as well. I'll I'll, I'll take a take a, a deeper look at it. I think it it could possibly be really interesting to see how pools would be implemented in Rust because it's all about having those resources there and sharing them somehow. Well, it's it's actually that. um so that's really easy that sort of stuff is really easy to do in Rust because what you what you return for, so the the library that we use for connection pooling um that that is sort of the de facto standard is called R2D2. Um and the the type that you get back when you when you check something out from the pool is um you're not actually getting the connection back. You're getting something that wraps the connection. Um and it implements a, t- a trait called deref which um basically means that it, it, if you try and dereference it like a pointer, it would take you to the connection. But you can also just call methods on it like it was a connection and just treat it as if it were a connection in most cases. But what, ha- what ends up happening is when that uh, value goes out of scope, it automatically returns it to the pool because the destructor of that wrapper type will just return the connection back to the th- back to the thread pool. That's awesome. That's really interesting because it's it's based on the scope. I mean, that's one of the reasons like uh, how these things work the way they do in Rust. But that's really interesting because in Elixir, what we would do is that those things are more associated to the process, which is the running thing. So what it would do is that if that process finishes, it goes back to the pool. It's not a scope-based, scope but the thing that you need to wrap around when you, you are thinking about it is the process itself. Right. Well, that's um, all scope, right? It's, it's just represented differently. Yeah, it's, it's not a code scope. And, and that's one of the things that... So we have like three things in Elixir, which is you have your code, which is going to perform some, some things, and all of the code runs inside a process. Right. And that process has data that belongs only to itself, right? We don't have shared data. Every time we want to have the data, you need to send it, it around and it's copied. So what's interesting uh, is that one of my, not complaints, but one of the things that you need to eventually wrap your head around is that when you look at some Elixir code and you need to think at some point, if you're doing things more concurrency related, like a pool, you need to think like, who is going to be executing this code, right? Which kind of process? And then I keep thinking that, for example, it would be cool if we had tools, for example, that I could run my test to it, or I could run some particular piece of code, and it would get my code, and it would show, look, this process ran this, and this other process ran this, to try to give people a more something more visible of how different processes may run the same piece of code, or how they are completely uh, separated. And then when you said, when we are thinking about the 
your example was really, really good because now you're having the resource kind of resource management tied to the scope, uh, which can be really helpful as well. Yeah, and and this and it's the same thing. That's that's for example also how mutexes in in Rust work. When you have a mutex wrapping a piece of data and you get and you get the thing back out, you don't actually get the data out of the mutex. You get a, a wrapper that represents the lock. And when the uh, and again you can treat it as you don't ever have to um, unless you're pattern matching or something. In which case you'd have to just put a star in front of it when you're matching against it. You generally just don't even have to know or care that you are um, working with that that you actually have that wrapper. And then when the wrapper goes out of scope, the mutex the mutex is unlocked automatically that's awesome that's really cool yeah i wanted to i wanted to circle back one quick second for change sets because we talked about them a bit before we talked about connection pooling i also really enjoy that the validations are wrapped up in the change set part and not in the schema part i think that's fantastic and like a kind of a uh, sean and i had kind of talked about like trying to do something like that with like a replacement for what active model would be right like having like an having some sort of attributes object that is what you pass around rather than active model right but then the other thing that i really liked i've really liked about working with ecto kind of related to that is the ability to back database constraints with user rate like user readable validations so like you can say this has a foreign key constraint basically and it will give you like a user readable validation error based on that. Or you can say, you can even say there, there's support for check constraints as well, right? Am I making that up? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, we have. Yeah, so check constraints and things like that in there, which is like, I've said before on the show and elsewhere that like, I feel like Rails kind of threw out a lot of the good parts of like database integrity and said like, no, no, we're going to handle this at the app layer. And kind of the thinking we've had is like, well, if you don't handle it at the app layer, then you have to deal with how like the databases return you different information and blah, 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 blah. But it's nice to see that like Ecto has kind of tried to figure out a happy medium of like, yes, you're still going to have to set it up in the database and you're still going to have to tell your application code about it, but they'll be able to communicate about the same thing. You won't be re-implementing database logic in your app layer. So I've really enjoyed that experience when I've been setting up new schemas. So I'm curious about the implementation there. Like, how are you actually determining which constraint is the thing that failed? So uh, most databases, I think the only one that doesn't do it is SQLite. When they return their error structure, it's like a structure that says, it can have a bunch of fields and says, this is the constraint that possibly failed. This is the table and things like that. Okay. So the actual database adapters, they need to be able to handle those and give format the information and give back to Acto, and then we just pair them. So are you just, so is the user giving you the name of the constraint then? Yes, and we, we okay. have defaults for like uniqueness. So if you say, I, I want to say that email is unique in your migration and you don't give it a name, it's going to be the same name that we are going to inflect in your chain set when you declare the constraint. So usually you don't need to think about the names, but if you need for some reason, you can pass the constraint name because that's what we use to match between what is in the database and what you're specifying on your code. And if you don't find anything that matches, we raise a constraint error saying, look, this operation failed because this contained in the database. And those are the constraints that we found in the, ch- the change set because there was no match. You are seeing this error now. So or you want this error indeed or you want to fix this. And I think okay. even I think Makes it sense. even tells you what you need to put into your schema file. I to, think so. To catch the, it's like if you want to handle this at the application layer, here's what you put in. And you're like, okay, great, fantastic. Uh, just two things I wanted to 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 mm-hmm. to to talk about this topic. So the first one was someone told me that their first experience with Phoenix, they got something very quick 
uh, they were working like for a week and they got it uh, up and running really, really fast. And when someone asked what was the experience, he said that I was just stumbling against a lot of errors and I was fixing them. And that's it, right? <laughs> Everything was working at the end. Like, oh, I did something, I saw the error and I did what the error told me to and it was working. So uh, that's a nice thing. But one of the things that, so we are talking here and we have a bunch of shared experience. I think that's why, you know, there's a lot of identification with what we are saying and so on, because we've both been, we all, all three, we have been burned out by things that we did uh, with Rails in the past, for example, of how it handles constraints, where you find out, for example, that you had duplicated emails in your database. And you're like, ah, how that can happen. <laughs> then you read the note in the documentation. So, and N plus one and so on. And it's really interesting because... At some point, someone said something like this. This was a long time ago. Someone tweeted that every in Rails we have a lot of authentication libraries uh, throughout time, and they said, and he said that every authentication solution we had in Rails is an extreme overreaction to the previous established solution. <laughs> right. So it's really interesting because sometimes I think about that a lot in the sense that we are making those decisions in action, uh, in acto, that can be seen as the opposite, like an overreaction. I mean, we are trying to find like good trade-offs and good compromises, right? It's not about going to the extreme, but a lot of people can go and say that's like, oh, I need to define the constraint both in my application and in my database. I don't care about that, right? That, you know, it's, it's an overreaction to an issue that exists. And I always think about that because people are always going to come and they're going to have different perspectives, right? They're going to, 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 to think that the fact that you need to declare the constraint in the database and declaring your application is too much, that uh, your application should be the only one responsible. But, you know, on the other hand, it's real life that kicks in and says, like, if you're doing that, you may end up with zero struggle, right? Mm -hmm. And it happens like in the simplest of case, for example, you are doing a sign up and then you submit and then you submit twice by accident and then you can have two accounts in there. <laughs> and because Postgres is not ordered, you can get different accounts depending on what, on what page you're rendering on how that query is executed. That's insane, right? right? But, uh, uh, but yeah, I just found it interesting because it comes a lot like, Am I doing the proper design decisions? I think right. uh, Sean's probably thinks a lot about that when he's working Dizzo. And, and it's really challenging and exciting and, and, and frustrating, all kinds of things, trying to get those ideas we know from us elsewhere, like Active Record, and trying to map into a runtime, an ecosystem that has completely different properties. And then you need to think about those problems and say, okay, what do I want to get out of it? Right. I mean, I think it's also a lot of it's deciding what even is worth keeping from Active Record. Um, yeah, because I mean that's that's sort of my big thing is if I could make any change to Active Record I, uh, I wanted uh, and didn't have to worry about backwards compatibility, I would delete a lot of features. <laughs> right. I like to say like a good a good influence is not only the things that you 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 bring, but also the things that you leave out. Right, especially like mistakes that we saw in the past. So, for example, well, the influence we have on design acto for the query syntax was link from .NET. And almost every books I read, people I talked about, everyone said that the most surprising thing that would happen a lot and they would always regret, it was that in Link, you can use the same query to fetch the database or to manipulate a, a, a list in memory, mm -hmm. right? But the thing is that you can have a query that's going to execute both of them performantly, right? So uh, we said, okay, there is a bunch of interesting ideas in here. 
but this aspect where I can use the query to run on runtime stuff, I'm going to completely drop it because, so that was one example of, there are a lot of good things, but they already told me what are the bad things and they're, and they're telling me like, don't do this mistake again, right? It's like right. preloading associations automatically. Well, it's also, right, you want to allow users to use the features of their database because databases have really cool and interesting features. And if you're not coupled to your database, then you're missing out on a lot of really cool and interesting things that you could be doing with your data. Right. I also think it's like speaking about coupling to the databases, like one thing I found interesting coming from Active Record was like Ecto supports not only relational databases, but also like NoSQL databases, right? And then also on top of that, like last week, somebody sent me a link, Paul sent me a link that was like, here's a GitHub adapter for, for yeah. Ecto. <laughs> yeah, the GitHub adapter was was really interesting. I know that the, so I was just talking about link and they do that. They can also have the query syntax and expanding it and it you can use to query some API. Yeah. So I, I think I think Wojtek, which is who did the GitHub thing, he's thinking more about uh, a way to consume Rust APIs using Ecto like that transparently, which is something worth exploring. But the interesting thing, so you, t- you, you talked about Mongo and you talked about GitHub. The interesting thing about GitHub is that it is so self-contained. The, the amount of features, Ecto has a huge feature set. The amount of features you can get from that when mapping to GitHub is really, really small. That makes it, I think it may be a better fit than Mongo because... It's a, it's a small thing, and you're mapping a small thing, and that's why it works. But Mongo, it's a huge thing. And then when you have the huge thing in Ecto, you're going to try to cross those concerns what, of what Ecto can do and what Mongo provides, and then you kind of end up more in a master situation. So the whole idea behind Mongo was exactly to, to see if we can get known relational databases like Mongo running on top of Ecto. And we got Mongo working, but to me, if it's really a good mapping or not, it's kind of like, it's still out there. I still don't know if the answer is a a yes or a no, if it's a 70% or 30%. I think we need to wait a little bit more. I think uh, Ecto 2 has a lot of improvements that is going to or make some problems, some integration with Mongo more apparent, or is going to solve them. And I'm excited to see how that's going to move forward. So on that note, actually, do you want to tell us about what's coming up uh, in the future of Elixir, Ecto, Phoenix, any of those? Oh, yeah. So let me talk a little bit about everything. (laughs) (laughs) So Phoenix, uh, with Phoenix on the two, uh, if you see Chris McCord, uh, if you get his talks, what is really, really interesting that we are getting out is something called Phoenix Presence and integration with Ecto 2. So the whole idea of Phoenix Presence, like if you want to implement like the very basic example is a chat room, so you know who is in the room or not. That's going to make it just work out of the box. And it's really interesting because you think, oh, that's actually an easy problem to solve, but it's not easy problem to solve at all because uh, even if you're right into the database, right, what happens if a node goes down? You need to have someone checking that all the respect to that application that they need to be cleaned from the table and things like that. So it's a very complicated issue. And uh, the solution that we are coming up with Phoenix, it's using like very recent research about how we can merge data between nodes. And it works without a database at all. You don't need a database. So Phoenix Press is going to allow you to track, for example, who is in this room or who is connected. can be a device if you're doing like Internet of Things stuff. You can know which embedded devices are there. And if a machine goes down, you're going to know immediately. Uh, everyone that's connected there is going to kind of be 
disconnected from application as well, regardless of where that machine are in the cluster. And the whole solution is we don't depend on the database. All the nodes are communicating with each other and keep this information coming and going. Uh, it's really, really nice, really, really exciting work that uh, Chris, Assange, and other folks uh, are doing. Now, from the Acto side, we are going to release Acto 2. We are going to release a bunch of blog posts on Platform Attack website about the features because really there is a lot of new stuff in there. So we have like support for subqueries. We talked about uh, concurrent transactional tasks. We have, I don't know, support for many-to-many associations, improving association support also. It's better. So one of the things that we are doing in Actitude, just to, to give an idea, and you go check the change log from information, is that... Because we have we have data, we have structs, right? We have those those types, those structs. So what you can do is that you can define the whole tree, like a user has many comments, and this comment has this permalink with association and so on. You can define you can define this whole structure as a data call repo insert on it, and we are going to traverse the whole thing and insert in the database. So uh, I was talking to Paul. Uh, because you have a factory solution for Elixir. And I was thinking that I hope this thing gets really, really close to not needing a fact- factory solution at all because they can just say, here's the sh- whole shape of my data, put it in the database, and it's going to work. Uh, so, there, yeah, there's a bunch of interesting stuff in there. I hope we can get a release candidate, possibly, this week. We'll see how it goes. And in Elixir, we talked uh, about a couple of things. There are like some nice improvements coming. We talk about App Tree. We talk about Depth Tree. We talk about the, the the date and time types, which I think is probably going to be our biggest, the most important thing in this release. But I'm also working on something called GenRouter. I've been working on this actually for a long period of time, a year, a year and a half. There's a lot of research on how to do those things efficiently, because the thing about uh, Elixir and Erlang is that we have those processes and we have this abstraction for concurrency, but there are things that depending on what you want to do, we don't have an abstraction ready for it yet. So I'm just going to, to give an example to show how this works. So our support for concurrency, it's really great. It's phenomenal. But if you wanted to get, if you have a, like a list of items and you want to process those items in parallel, it's going to be less lines of code in Java than it is in Elixir. So today in Elixir, it's still going to be maybe two lines of code, three lines of code, because we can use task async await. But there are a lot of efficient ways we, we, we can do that, but we don't have those abstraction that, there. So we have all those great foundations you know, for concurrency, but there are building blocks, and we need to have more things in those building blocks. And the idea behind GenRouter is to come up with one really, really good abstraction that is going to allow us to say, you know, I have this producer of data and I want to consume this data, be mapping it, be putting it on S3, whatever you want to consume it, but handle all those different scenarios. Like sometimes you want to receive a data from a producer and broadcast it to a lot of consumers. Sometimes you want to do like a round robin algorithm or different sharding algorithms. So that's something else we're investigating. But I think those are kind of the things that are very... High-level definitions, but you can get material on Ecto, uh, talks on Phoenix. You can come to, we're going to have an uh, Elixir conference here in Europe, and uh, Craze and I will be talking on those things. We also have a bunch of exciting stuff happening in the embedded area, and I think uh, Justin, who is working a lot on having really good experience in building embedded applications with Elixir, he's going to be there as well. So it's a good event to go and catch up and see what is happening in the community as a whole. Awesome. Sounds like a lot of exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
thanks so much for joining us. Um, we should probably wrap up because we've been going for a while. I know people probably want us to keep going, but um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll have you on again sometime. But thanks for everything. And it's been a pleasure using Elixir. Do you have a place you want to plug if people want to get in contact with you or anything else? Yeah, so I guess try Elixir. Come to the events. I talk about the Elixir Conference Europe. Uh, there is Elixir Conference that's going to happen in Florida as well in, in September in United States. So if you're in United States, there is no excuse to not go. <laughs> and um, yeah, just if you want to talk to me, hit me on Twitter. If you want to give feedback about Elixir, we talk a lot about it. Come to the mailing list, hit me on RC. And yeah, and thank you for having me. I really had a, a great time. It was really nice conversation. And yeah, let's keep improving things and moving forward. All right. Great. <laughs> thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for coming thank on. You. It was great Bye. talking to you. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 57. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. As always, thanks for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.